You're listening to a medical miscellany, a curious casebook of brilliant discoveries, scientific advances, bizarre cures, and some downright quackery. Dr. Peter Kay and Sean Aita. Episode 7, The Circulation of the Blood. Hi there, Pete. How are you? Hi, Sean. I'm good, thanks. Looking forward to our next discussion. Absolutely. Right. So today, uh, we said we were going to continue a little bit with uh, something to do with the blood. So um, Mm. what are you going to tell me about blood? Blood. Well, now, I was looking at this thinking, I think we touched on Harvey and the discovery of the circulation of the blood. That's right, yeah. And that set me thinking about somebody called Galen, who was the kind of god of medicine for hundreds of years, the Greek physician who wrote about 350 books with the help of scribes of course mm. and was yeah he was a genius he was also a big head he wrote lots of books about how <laughs> with the trouble is we only know how good he was because of all the books he wrote about himself so ah. he was such a big head that he, he's bound to look good because he describes his own cases in glowing terms yeah it sounds a little bit like freud <laughs> exactly <laughs> galen and freud <laughs> if galen said it you couldn't for hundreds of years you couldn't contradict it basically oh, yeah. and that went right the way through to the sort of 15th 16th century and he was the uh, physician to the gladiators he came from a very wealthy family he had a 10-year medical education, including in Alexandria. Um, he had a, he was a brilliant man, obviously. Clearly, he was a genius. Yeah. Um, but he was, became physician to the physician of the gladiators, which is quite an eminent role, yeah. for about four years. And that involves putting together... His, his job description was keep them alive and keep them fighting, basically. I was going to say, it must have been actually a pretty tricky task when uh, the gladiators, if they weren't killed, came back. Yeah, together, falling to pieces. To yeah, back together yeah. Again, yeah, and that's probably where he got his interest in anatomy because he he must have had at times when he could look inside, and not not only the joints but as occasionally inside the chest that's been opened or the abdomen that's been opened. And think, well, oh, what's going on in there? So he became possibly through that became interested in anatomy. But in those days, it was forbidden to dissect human bodies. Yeah, as uh, we discussed yeah, yeah, previously. Yeah. yeah, so he mainly dissected animals, particularly monkeys, but lots of other animals, but especially yeah. monkeys. And he wrote lots and lots of very very uh, authoritative books about the human anatomy uh, assuming it was the same as the monkey and of course it's similar but not the same so there's lots of differences which he got wrong but one thing he got very wrong was the circulation of the blood so um, he taught that of course, you know, he knew, he knew there was blood in there. Yeah. He didn't yeah. understand the, the arteries and the veins were the, the yeah. roots of them. He didn't, he didn't understand properly. But he made this theory, he got this theory that the blood was created by the liver or the ingester okay. and then spread out uh, through the, the vessels of the body yeah. to, the, to the edges of the body. So that would mean that it's blood, the blood's flowing all the time from inside our bodies out towards the edges. So where, um, where, where is the blood actually formed then? Well, it's formed in the bone marrow, basically. Ooh. in the bone marrow yeah um that's where the, the blood cells are formed the big part of blood is liquid but his theory um is interesting because it was believed as gospel truth for centuries yeah and yet and yet if he's you know his theory was all blood starts in the middle of your body and flows out and yet for centuries any doctor could have just looked at the back of the hand like i'm doing now squeezing your wrist so you can see the veins on the back of your hand yeah and then you can stroke a vein on the back of your hand and discover that it's flowing from the periphery into the centre because of it, these are veins. So the, the, you can see, you can actually, if you press on your own on, on your own vein, you can yeah. you can block it. This is the, the uh, this is a point at which we wish we were doing a video. Podcast, <laughs> basically, <laughs> but, I look at your hand and see exactly what you're saying, and yeah. everybody else wonders what's going what's on. going on. But yeah. basically, if you if you get find a vein, particularly if you can find a dilated vein on the back of your hand, and I've got very marked veins on the back of my hand. Yeah. If you stroke one from the finger towards the wrist, right. it empties and it refills again. 
Ah, so you can tell where it's coming from. Sorry, I've got the wrong one. You stroke it from the wrist to the finger like that. Uh, so it yeah. empties, and then yeah. that's like it's empty. You can see it's empty. And I touch that, and it fills again. And you can see it's filling from the finger towards the wrist. Yes. It's filling from the periphery. So Galen's theory must have been wrong. Okay. All blood comes so, out from the middle to the edges. Yeah. But nobody ever questioned it. But this is the thing about observation, isn't it? That's yeah. a kind of interesting area that quite often it seems that medical advances have been made because somebody actually looks rather than just surmises and I think as well you have to have some kind of model to to believe you have to have some kind of way of thinking about it because if you haven't got a way of thinking about it whatever you see doesn't doesn't tie in with your belief system yes. you think well that can't can't be right you, just, you discount it yes um, yes that's so it's many many times so it's, it, the discovery is seeing what everybody's seen and thinking what nobody's thought that's one dis dis definition of a sort of great discovery isn't it seeing yeah. what everybody else has seen but thinking what nobody else has thought and nobody else thought for example, look at the vein at the back of the hand and see, oh, actually, the blood isn't all going out yeah. from the centre of the body to the edges. It's going and coming the other way as well. So when, um, and interestingly, um, you know, we, Harvey's, def Harvey's great discovery, William Harvey was a genius, um, great, probably the most famous, one of the most famous doctors ever, yeah. because he discovered the circulation. And he did it mathematically. He just worked out that um, the amount of blood that was being pumped by the heart in an hour was far more than the whole volume of the blood in the animal so it must be going round and round and round it can't be it can't be pumping that amount it can't be making that amount I every few, every sort of you know few minutes it's got to be pumping it round and round and round so that's how he sort of started but out presumably you know galen would have seen that the body is a closed system did he not imagine that blood I don't travelled well, around the body and stayed in the body? Clearly not. No, no, that's interesting as to why not, really. That, yeah, his, theory, yeah. his theory that he taught and which everybody bought into was that the blood was created in the liver and flowed out towards the edge of the body where it, where it fed, it nourished the body and was therefore used, was up, used up by the edge yes. of the body. Yes, that was this kind it. of so theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was 1628 when, when Harvey discovered the circulation of the blood and yet, you know, the Chinese were way ahead of us. Okay. Uh, way I'm, ahead of us. I'm sure this is going to be the case, actually. We were talking about the fact that we, uh, a lot of this medical miscellany is about Western medicine. Yeah. And that at some point in the future, we should um, yeah. chat with an expert in uh, Chinese medicine yeah. and yeah, other yeah. traditional medicine. Or even Ayurvedic medicine yeah, from India. Yeah, absolutely. It would be really interesting. It would be very interesting because uh, we, we are very much focusing on Western medicine. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, Joseph Needham's famous book, I think, goes back to 1954 when he first published it but it's still still ongoing it's called science and civilization in china he was the first person to actually realize that the chinese i mean we, we famously they, they discovered the compass course, and yeah. uh, gunpowder and printing and so on including i think a toothbrush um <laughs> but but also a lot of medical discoveries they were way ahead of us yeah. hundreds of years before we discovered the circulation of the blood they had way before we discovered that sweet urine was um, a problem with thirst and diabetes. They yeah. discovered that hundreds of years before we did. By drinking it, presumably. <laughs> well, certainly tasting it anyway. <laughs> I was interested in how they know it was sweet. Yeah. Well, there's, a famous, yeah. there's a famous medical student story about that. We can do that another time. Oh, please. Um, so, yeah, going back to Harvey then. So he discovered the circulation. But he was very, rather like Charles Darwin, was very frightened of announcing it because he thought, oh, this is absolutely going against the grain of what everybody believes. You know, yeah. nobody's going to believe me that it goes round and round. And of course, he, even after he'd made that discovery, it didn't stop doctors going on believing in the humours and going on believing in bleeding patients and so on. Yeah. Um, because they, they, it was ingrained in their way of thinking. Well, also, it was a very lucrative trade, wasn't it? It was something they could physically mm. do and get yep. paid for. Yeah. So if you take that away... What have you got? As mm. you were saying, then you know you don't actually have an awful lot of cures in, mm. Mm. in, the, in those uh, days. Yeah. In those days, yeah, mm. yeah. So we uh, we touched on bloodletting uh, a little while ago, and um, I've been looking in your medical miscellany, and there's this rather wonderful um, anecdote or kind of section about uh, a great 
blood letter called Guy Patin, a Frenchman uh, from 1647, I think. And uh, there's a nice little quotation here, which he says, there is no remedy in the world which works as many miracles as bleeding. Okay. <laughs> yeah, good. and he um, he doesn't seem to have been a hypocrite because it says that he uh, he bled his son about twenty times. Yeah, and even even bled himself about seven bled, times just, for, just for having a head cold. Yeah, absolutely. so he definitely believed in it, didn't he? But um, doctors in those days kept no records, so they they didn't gather enough evidence to prove what they were doing worked or didn't. And so, like many of them in that stage, bled with abandon. Yeah, and uh, it says here that uh, there were something like 40 million leeches were imported annually in France. In that that, that was 200 years later, they're still doing it, because <laughs> they, they tended to use leeches for the bits that are difficult to bleed. Right. You, know, you can take blood out of the arm for general health and general sort of rebalancing, yeah. but if you wanted to take blood out of somewhere like a finger or a lip or a gum, uh, or in fact in the neck of the womb, you, you'd just apply a leech, Lovely. stick a leech on. Um, How did they take it out otherwise? What else did they use? Well, they had all sorts of devices, all sorts of funny ways of doing it. There was a thing called cupping, where you put a, a, a <laughs> that glass... sounds filthy. You put a glass um, bowl over somebody's back, a warm glass bowl. Then as it cooled, it lifts the skin up. And then you get a thing called a scarifier, which is a... or a schnapper. The various things, the, the spring-loaded box with about 12 to 18 blades, which was scratched with multiple scratches on the skin. Yeah. And then you put the bowl back on, which would suck all the blood out again. And cupping was quite a, a common thing, still done in so many parts of the world. Oh, um, a scarifier sounds appalling. Yeah, yeah, and all sorts of things that they did devise to, to get the blood out, thinking of it as a, it might be a cleverer way of making people better, feel better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, but really... the, it went on. I mean, even in the even in the you know, late 18th century, there was a very famous American doctor called Benjamin Rush, who was literally rushing about, bloodletting as fast as he could go. Yeah. And he lived in Philadelphia. I think he was one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence. Was he really? Uh, yeah, yeah, and very eminent doctor. He wasn't and one of the people who um, was uh, on duty when George Washington was dying. Was yeah, I don't think he was one of those. No. <laughs> I'll, you, I'll have to come back to that. You said he had a horrible death. So he yeah. did, yeah. Well, poor George Washington, he, he got bled. Of course, they all did, these famous guys. He got bled yeah, a vast yeah, we, amount. We talked about it a little in, in one of our earlier podcasts. Another yeah. interesting thing is that one of the young, very young doctors who had been trained in Edinburgh suggested actually giving him some blood by the time he was absolutely moribund. And they said, well, that's not very... Relatives just thought, well, that's not very sensible. We've already taken six pounds from him. Why, why, why do you want to give any back? So that didn't go down too well. But anyway, going back to Benjamin Rush, he was a uh, very keen and, and doctor, and there was, a, there was an outbreak of yellow fever in Philadelphia, because although it's associated with... Um, the tropics it's, it, it can occur in quite colder climates sometimes yellow fever okay we know now of course it's, it's spread by mosquitoes but we didn't know that then yeah they didn't know that then so he, he rushed about um and a lot of people 10 people a day were dying in the city he rushed about from house to house bleeding people as fast and as hard as he could believing that that would help them mm. and you know basically doing more harm than good yeah but yeah. Uh, no records again and um he he was very criticised by um, people at the time, but most of the most of the city were very pleased with him, and he, he became you know, very, a very eminent and lauded doctor for his, all his good work. If you don't keep any records, then you have no list of how many people you've killed or how many have survived. Mm. Then mm. actually, it's quite difficult to disprove the effectiveness yeah. of a cure, isn't exactly, it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 There were later doctors who did start to keep records, thank heavens, and 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 prove that uh, he was no more useful than just resting. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Mm. Well, that's a little bit like, yes, when we were talking about the placebo effect as well, is 
you know, mm. clinical trials and all those kinds of things. Obviously, nobody could do that sort of thing mm. back in those days. Yeah. But it's interesting because um, 20 years after Rush died, there was another epidemic of yellow fever in uh, Philadelphia. And a medical student who had the great name of Stubbins Firth <laughs> decided that Rush had got it wrong. Rush believed it was something in the air, some bad air that was... Uh, Miasma. Miasma, that's right. Yeah. Something, some bad smell coming off um, rotting meat or rotting vegetation was, was causing disease somehow. So it, because of bad smell, I suppose. Yeah. And he didn't. He thought, it was, he thought it could spread from person to person. So he went, went good and hard at trying to prove that it did. And one of the characteristics of yellow fever was vomiting black blood because it affects the blood clotting. Yeah. Um, and so the blood doesn't clot properly, and then you get bleeding inside the gut. And as we discussed, uh, I remember we discussed in the, in the four humours, one of the four right, humours was bile. black bile, because yeah. presumably sometimes black vomit comes out black yeah. or motion. So yep. what, what Stubbins first did was to take some of the black vomit, the patient had just, just sicked up, literally just sicked up, and inoculate it into himself, open a vein and push it into his bloodstream. To try to give himself it to prove that it was could, could spread from one person to another. And then he did all sorts of things. He swallowed it, he rubbed it in his eyes, he tried every which way to give himself yellow fever and never managed and it. And it didn't work. And he quite rightly said, I don't think it can spread from person to person. I think my theory is wrong. Yeah. And he was correct because it doesn't. It spreads. It has, you need a mosquito to spread it. That's it, how it, it spreads. Another one of the self-experimenters then. Yeah, exactly. But fortunately, didn't die of yellow fever as a result of his, yeah, uh, yeah. his tests. Yeah. Although there were some doctors who did die of yellow fever when they were trying to investigate the effects of the mosquitoes. who volunteered to be bitten by mosquitoes and they did die. No. Yeah, that yeah. was another... And a chap called Walter Reed, a famous um, commissioner in America, and some of the volu- medical doctor volunteers uh, succumbed uh, very bravely, or volunteered to, 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 to be infected with a, yeah. a yellow fever mosquito, mosquito. bite and then uh, died, yeah. Gosh. Very sadly. I'm actually preparing uh, my anti-mosquito stuff at the moment for a, a trip to Thailand. So, yeah. Do, now, do, have, have you had a yellow fever vaccination? Uh, no, I haven't. No. Mm. Um, uh, well, the area that I'm going to is mm. not known mm. for it. We're not going into the jungle or anywhere near the yeah. kind of border with... But it's uh, one of the things uh, that we sort of get uh, when we're travelling now. Many countries do insist on about yellow fever vaccination, don't they? Because it's still alive and well throughout the world. That's right, yeah. Um, and yeah. mostly we're thankfully protected from it. Well, hopefully if we do another series of podcasts in the future, I will come back healthy and well and uh, <laughs> won't succumb to yellow fever. And thriving. Now you've worried me now, Pete. <laughs> I think I should have, had, should have a vaccination. No, no, I'm sure that would advise you. You don't need it in certain areas, don't you? Certain yeah, areas absolutely. And not others. Okay, well, that's the end of our podcast for today. So, Well, when do you go to Thailand? Um, in about three weeks. Brilliant. Have a great time. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Bye. Join us next time for some more self-experimenting doctors.